welcome to the Gallybega Press podcast number eight. I hope you're doing okay out there. For this podcast, I've got something pretty special. It's a reading of the first chapter of the forthcoming novel Mordew by its author, Alex Phoebe. Alex is actually busy recording the whole book as I sit here on a quiet, very quiet Tuesday evening in Norwich. He may be at work just a few streets away from where I am, but also far, far out of reach. At least, however, I've been able to enjoy listening to his voice, and I hope you do too. He's told me that he's rigged up a microphone and he puts a duvet over his head to improve the sound quality because not only is he a genius, he's also very clever. Uh, We're going to be putting out the whole recording in instalments. You'll be able to find it on Patreon if you search for Gallia Press and we'll be making it available to our subscribers and to people who pre-order the hardback. But this first chapter is a gift from us to you and I really hope that you enjoy encountering this wonderful novel. Part 1. The Flint 1. The southern slums of the great city of Mordew shook to the concussion of waves and firebirds crashing against the seawall. Daylight, dim and grey through the thick clouds, barely illuminated what passed for streets, but the flickering burst of each bird flashed against the overcast like red lightning. Perhaps today the master's barrier would fail, drowning them all. Perhaps today the mistress would win. Out of the shadows, a womb-born boy, Nathan Treves, trudged through the heavy mist. His father's old boots were too big, and his thick woolen knee socks were sodden. Every step rubbed his blisters, so he slid his feet close to the ground, furrowed them like ploughs through the living mud. He made his way along what slum-dwellers called the promenade, a pockmarked scar which snaked from the seawall to the strand. It weaved between hovels lashed together from brine-swollen driftwood and decorated with firebird feathers. Behind him he left his parents and all their troubles. Though his errand was as urgent as ever, he went slowly. A dying father, riddled with lungworms, is pressing business, and medicine doesn't come cheap. But Nathan was just a boy. No boy runs towards Sphere eagerly. In his fists, Nathan twisted his pillowcase. His knuckles shone through the dirt. He was walking to the circus, that depression in the earth where the dead life grew larger. Here, if fortune allowed, flukes could be found, choking in the mud. The journey would take him an hour, though, at least and there was no guarantee of anything. All around, the detritus that insulated one home from another creaked and trembled at the vibrations of the wall and the movement of vermin. Though Nathan was no baby, his imagination sometimes got the better of him, so he kept to the middle of the promenade. Here he was out of reach of the grasping claws and the strange, vague figures that watched from the darkness, though the middle was where the writhing mud was deepest. 
It slicked over the toes of his boots, and occasionally dead life sprats were stranded on them, flicking and curling. These he kicked away, even if it did hurt his blisters. No matter how hungry he was, he would never eat dead life. Dead life was poison. From nearby came the tolling of a handbell. It rang slow and high, announcing the arrival of the fetches cart. From the shacks and hovels, grown-ups emerged eagerly, doors drawn aside to reveal their families crowded within. Nathan was an only child, but he was a rarity in the slums. It wasn't unusual for a boy to have ten, even fifteen brothers and sisters. The fecundity of the slum dwellers was enhanced by the living mud, it was said. Moreover, womb children were matched in number by those of more mysterious provenance, who might be found in the dawn light, mewling in a corner, unexpected and unwelcome. When overextended mothers and fathers heard the fetch's bell, they came running out, boy children in their arms, struggling, and paid the cartman to take them to the master, where they might find work. So were these burdens, almost by alchemy, turned into regular coin, which the fetch also delivered for a cut. Nathan watched as coins were given, children taken, coins taken, children returned. Then he turned his back on it all and went on. The further he walked from his home, the less the drumbeat on the seawall troubled his ears. There was something in the sheer volume of that noise up close which lessened the other senses and bowed the posture. But, when Nathan came gradually onto the strand where it intersected the promenade and led toward the circus, he was a little straighter than he had been, a little taller, and much more alert. There were other slum dwellers here, too, so there was more to be alert to, both good and bad. Up ahead there was a bonfire, ten feet high. Nathan stopped to warm himself. A man, scarred and stooped, splashed rendered fat at the flames, feeding them, keeping the endless rainwater from putting the wood out. On the fire was an effigy of the mistress, crouched obscenely over the top, her legs licked with fire, her arms directing unseen firebirds. Her face was an ugly scowl painted on a perished iron bucket, her eyes two rust holes. Nathan picked up a stone and threw it. It arced high and came down, clattering the mistress, tipping her head over. People came to the strand to sell what bits of stuff they had to others who had the wherewithal to pay. The sellers raised themselves out of the mud on old boxes and sat with their wares arranged neatly in front of them on squares of cloth. If he'd had the money, Nathan could have got string and nets and catapults and oddments of flat glass and sticks of meat. Don't ask of what. Today there was a glut of liquor, sold off cheap in wooden cups, from barrels marked with the red merchant crest. There was no way this had been come by legally. The merchants kept a firm grip on their stock, and didn't sell into the slums. So it was either stolen or salvaged. There was no way of telling, either way, until it was drunk. If it was stolen then buyers got nothing worse than a headache the next day. But if it was salvaged, then that was because it was bad and had been thrown overboard to be washed up portside. Bad liquor made you blind. Nathan wouldn't have bought it anyway. He didn't like the taste. But he had no coins and nothing much to barter with except his pillowcase and the handkerchief in his pocket, 
So he joined the other marching children, eyes to the floor, watching out for movement in the living mud. He didn't recognise anyone, but he wasn't looking. It was best to keep your distance and mind your own business. What if one of them took notice and snatched whatever was in your bag on the way home? There were some coming back, bags wriggling. Others' bags were still, but heavy. A few had nothing but tears in their eyes. Too cowardly, probably, to venture deep enough into the mud. Nathan could have stolen from those that had made a catch, grab what they had and run, but he wasn't like that. He didn't need to be. As he got closer, the itch pricked at his fingertips. It knew, the itch, when and where it was likely to be used, and it wasn't far now. Don't spark, not ever. His father used to stand over him when Nathan was very small, serious as he wagged his finger, and Nathan was a good boy. But even good boys do wrong now and again, don't they? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between good and bad anyway, between right and wrong. His father needed medicine, and the itch wanted to be used. Above, a stray firebird struggled up into the clouds, weighed down by a man hanging limp below it. The strand widened, the street vendors became fewer. Here was a crowd, nervous, a reluctant semicircular wall of children, nudging and pushing and stepping back and forwards. Nathan walked where there weren't so many backs, and shouldered his way through. He wasn't any keener than the others, he wasn't any braver, but none of them had the itch, and now it was behind his teeth and under his tongue, tingling. It made him impatient. The wall was three or four deep, and it parted for him, respecting his eagerness, or eager itself to see what might become of him. A dog-faced girl licked her teeth. A grey, gormless boy with a bald patch reached for him, then thought better of it, and returned his hand to his chest. He was through, and, itch or no itch, he stood with the others at the edge for a moment. In front was the circle marked by the feet of the children who surrounded it, large enough so that the faces on the other side were too distant to make out, but not so large that you couldn't see that they were there. The ground gave way and sloped, churned up, down to a wide, mud-filled pit. Some stood in it, knee-deep at the edges, waist-deep further out. At the distant middle, they were up to their necks, eyes shut, mouths upturned, fishing in the writhing thickness by feel. These in the middle had the best chance of finding a fluke. The complexity of the organisms generated by the living mud, it was said, was a function of the amount of it gathered in one place, while those nearer the edge may do with sprats. Nathan took a breath and strode down the slope, the enthusiasm of the itch dulling the pain of his blisters until he could barely feel them. When he had half walked, half slid his way to the shallows, he clamped his pillowcase between his teeth, first to protect it from getting lost, but also, for later, to stop dead life finding its way into his mouth. The mud was thick, but that didn't stop it getting past his socks and into his shoes. He had to think hard not to picture new spawned dead life writhing between his toes. Deeper, and there were things brushing his knees, some the size of a finger moving in the darkness. Then, occasionally, the touch of something on his thighs, seeking, groping, 
flinching away by reflex. There was nothing to fear, he told himself, since whatever these things were, they had no will, and would be dead in minutes, dissolving back into the living mud. They meant no harm to anyone. They meant nothing. When the mud was up to his waist, he turned back to look the way he had come. The circle of children jostled and stared, but no one was paying him particular attention, nor was there anyone near him. The itch was almost unbearable. His father said never to use it. Never use it. He couldn't have been clearer. Never. Finger wagging. So Nathan reached into the mud, itch restrained, and fished with the others. Flukes could be found. He had seen them, self-sustaining living things. If he could catch hold of one, then he wouldn't have to betray his father. He moved his hands, opening and closing through the mud, the sprats slipping between his fingers. There was always a chance. As he felt for things below the surface, he stared upward at the slow spiral of the glass road. It showed as a spider's web glint that looped above him, held in the air by the magic of the master. If Nathan turned his head and looked from the side of his eyes, it became clearer, a high pencil line of translucence leading off to the master's manse. What did the master think of the circus? Did he even know it existed? There! Nathan grabbed at a wrist's thickness of something and pulled it above the surface. It was like an eel, brown-grey, jointed with three elbows. Its ends were frayed, and it struggled to be free. There was the hint of an eye, the suspicion of gills, what might have been a tooth close to the surface. But as Nathan held it, it lost its consistency, seeming to drain away into the mud from each end. No good. If it had held, he might have got a copper or two from someone, its skin good for glove-making, the bones for glue. But it was gone, dissolving into its constituents unwilling or unable to retain its form. Now the itch took over. There is only so much resistance a boy can muster. And what was so bad? They needed medicine, and he either blacked his eyes or made a fluke. Wasn't this better? He glanced surreptitiously to both sides and put his hands beneath the mud. He bent his knees, and it was easy as anything, natural as could be, he simply scratched and the itch was released. It sent a spark down into the living mud and, with the relief of the urge, pleasure of a sort, and a faint blue light that darted into the depths. Nothing happened for a moment. The relief became a slight soreness, like pulling off a scab. Then the mud began to churn. The churning bubbled, the bubbling thrashed, and then there was something between his hands which he raised. Each fluke is unique. This one was a bundle of infant limbs, arms, legs, hands, feet, a tangle of wriggling living parts. When the children in the circle spied it, they gasped. It was a struggle to keep his grip, but Nathan took his pillowcase from between his teeth and forced the fluke into it. He slung it over the shoulder, where it kicked and poked and whacked him in the back as he trudged in the rain back to shore.
that was the first chapter of Morgy. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back with another Galley Beggar Press podcast soon. In the meantime, please, please stay well.